to address the issues facing Tennesseans today. From 10 News, this is Inside Tennessee. Good morning and welcome to Inside Tennessee. I'm your moderator, John Becker. We dive into the world of money and politics. Does cash buy access? Does money move voters toward or away from the ballot box? Those are a couple of questions we'll ask our guest and panel. But first, perspective on the record spending the race to fill the Senate seat held by Bob Corker. Republican Congressman Marsha Blackburn and former Tennessee Governor Phil Bredesen amounts to the most costly race in state history and the spending isn't over. Here's 10 News reporter Shannon Smith. Almost $70 million to fund two candidates' campaigns is unheard of in Tennessee. No, I'd love to have a client spend 35 to uh, $70 million, but uh, no, I've never seen anything like this. Gary Drennan has done consulting work for about 100 political campaigns in East Tennessee. So the biggest cost is certainly uh, TV ads. They're spending money uh, on uh, digital advertising at this point in the games. He says the money to fund their campaigns comes from more than one source. You're seeing a lot of third party spending, which means that there are no limits to the amount that individuals can give. But if that $70 million was given elsewhere, what change could it make in Tennessee? So Habitat in Loudoun County spends to build a new home for somebody, they spend about $120,000. That's about 583 Habitat for Humanity houses. $70 million can also pay one year of salary for 1,461 teachers, a year of groceries for 4,658 families, one year of tuition at UT for 5,382 students, and a year of utility bills for 43,942 families. No matter how you slice it, there's a lot of stuff you could do. So if so much direct good can be done with this money, why do people give so much to political campaigns? Well, I think you probably see people that are doing both. They're probably contributing to these campaigns as well as making a difference in their community. And they probably see their giving to the campaigns as a way to impact their communities. Shannon Smith on the story. Gary Drennan, a political activist and a guy who's helped strategize for campaigns, helping us out with that breakdown. Our guest this morning, Dr. Katie Cahill, who is the associate director for the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy, nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Tom Ingram is back with us as well. Longtime political strategist, one-time chief of staff for U.S. Senator, Tom, uh, I almost said Tom Alexander, it's Lamar Alexander. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> nice to have both of you. On the end there, Don Bosch, he runs his own law firm. He's also an attorney in town. Susan Williams runs her own PR firm. She's a Republican. Good morning, John. And John is my true north. John North is a, a producer and digital manager of all things good at Channel 10. Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's start with the original question. Is money in politics good for politics? Dr. Cahill. So this is an interesting question that we have struggled with um, since even before the nation's founding. In 1739, actually, George Washington was running for the House of Burgess. And as part of his campaign strategy, he gave guests um, everything from rum to money um, to sort of promote his cause. And so the question of whether or not how um, money and politics should be intertwined and how closely um, is one we struggle with. And actually, some of the earliest legislation that we deal with now um, started in 1911. And so um, this is an evolving question. I think that the biggest concern is that those with the most money um, potentially have more influence, and that goes against our democratic notions um, of everybody having an equal say in the way that we're governed. Does money buy access, Tom? Not as much as you think. Uh, I think the problem with money is that it, uh, it keeps a lot of people out of politics. It, 
it creates very unlevel playing fields and uh, it, it allows, it, it makes our campaigns too long mm -hmm. and, uh, and makes it very difficult to really understand and know the candidates. Is the amount of money that we're seeing in particular in this U U.S. Senate race surprising to either of you? It's not surprising. Uh, it's obscene, but not surprising. <laughs> Disheartening would be another word that comes mm -hmm. to mind. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, as um, you've already reported, it's um, the most spending in state history on an individual race. And that's on trend for the, the country, actually. So, it's projected that there's going to be $5 billion spent um, on this midterm election, which is more, the most um, spent in a midterm election in U.S. history. And as our panel starts to weigh in, just a quick definition for us, because we mm -hmm. hear a lot of terms tossed around when it comes to money and politics, yeah. super PAC and PAC. You want to make sure that we're clear on the differences. Right. So a PAC is stands, a PAC stands for a Political Action Committee. And those Political Action Committees um, are actually a little bit older, and they are made up of corporate and labor donors. And so they can give up to $5,000 to any individual candidate's campaign. Now, a super PAC is something that we started talking about after the 2010 Citizen United case. A super PAC can spend an unlimited amount of money um, to support a candidate as long as it doesn't coordinate with that candidate's campaign. So it's sort of an independent interest, but it can spend an unlimited amount of money. And it doesn't have to disclose the donors to the super PAC as well. That's right. So um, this is known, um, has been called dark money. Mm -hmm. so. so, Tom, break down the Senate race. We believe that by Tuesday, uh, about $80 million is going to get spent between uh, Bredesen and Blackburn. And of that $80 million, when we're talking about super PACs, PACs, and individual donors, and the candidate money, what, what does it look like for our average viewer? About $30 million from the candidates and money they have raised or given, and only about $5 million is going to be self-funded in the Senate race, and that's mm -hmm. by Bredesen. About $30 million, I'm about $50 million, therefore, from outside parties. PACs and super PACs. PACs and super PACs, mm -hmm. both of which are bad, both of which give people outside of the state, outside of the, the, the course of the campaign, disproportionate influence on the campaign. And Tom, we were talking before the show, uh, there are limits on individual donors, and I, I don't recall quite what the, is it 4,400? 2,700 per, per, per election. It goes up every cycle. Right, yeah, so 50, right, uh, 50 tragically, 5,400. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, so if, if an individual can give 5,400 total for the, the general and the primary, what, what would you suggest in terms of both what candidates can contribute to themselves and, and possibly what PACs could contribute? Uh, do you have a suggestion of maybe how to manage this so, again, the every man can have a chance of getting into these races? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about the limit, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 25, as I am the super PACs and PACs that really have a disproportionate influence on our elections. I, I go back to an idea that Howard, Senator Howard Baker, uh, after whom the center's named, and uh, a former uh, uh, folk politician around Tennessee, John J. Hooker, Jr., they were buddies. And they came up with the idea that uh, we should look at passing a constitutional convention across the country, constitutional amendment, that says, if you can't vote for me, you can't give to me. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that. If so that you, would cut out PACs and super PACs. That would cut out PACs, super PACs. It would shut down fundraising in Washington. It would just shut down the industry in Washington. Lobbyists would no longer have to write checks. So you'd have to do that by constitutional amendment because of Citizens United. It had to be by constitutional amendment now, but I believe that would be so popular state by state that mm -hmm. you could, if somebody would fund it, you could pass it. Oh, but it wouldn't be popular course. with those sitting in the elected seats now. No, but they, they don't, they, they, if there's a groundswell for it, 
I mean, that's how, that's how, right. that's we, what drives them. We can talk more about this um, and, and what you think of that idea, Susan, as well. And we'll get to more questions right after this short break on Inside Tennessee. Dr. Katie Cahill from the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy and Tom Ingram, longtime Politico and one-time Chief of Staff for Senator Lamar Alexander, our guest this morning. And John, I might want to say one-time panelist on this show. Yes, yeah, indeed. True. Indeed. Long ago. Very long Has ago. always <laughs> offered great perspective for us. And we, we were talking for our viewers who don't know the Citizens United case. This mm -hmm. was a defining case by the Supreme Court mm -hmm. in political fundraising and spending. Mm -hmm. um, for, for both of you, uh, just dive into that history because I think it will be instructional for people who aren't familiar with it. Mm -hmm. So the Citizens United case was decided in 2000 in a 5-4 decision. And essentially what it established was that political donations are tantamount to free speech. And so that the government could not regulate whether or not corporations or um, you know, organizations could spend their own money um, to support a particular candidate. They did distinguish that they couldn't give the money directly to the candidate's campaign, um, but they can um, spend their own money to create ads or um, do other sort of um, support activity. And I think a lot of people decided pretty quickly it was a terrible decision. I think that um, you may be right about that. So a lot of people um, think that this was, a, this was an opening of the gate um, to sort of all sorts of outside interests. I think that the conversation we were having before, too, about outside money is really interesting about this notion of you can't um, donate to me if you can't vote for me. Because actually around 50% of the spending on the um, Tennessee Senate race comes from addresses outside of the state. And so not just outside money in the form of super PACs and PACs, but literally geographically outside of the state. Tom, what's the significance of that? It, it perverts our, our elections. Uh, mm -hmm. Candidates now plan elections, not based on talking to their voters, but based on what is likely to come at them from super PACs. People outside the country that we don't, I mean, outside the state, you have, mm -hmm. you, you, most cases you don't even know who they are. You may know some organization umbrella they sit under, but you don't know them individually. And they have no limits. Mm -hmm. uh, the court uh, adopted it under uh, the premise of free speech, mm -hmm. but they completely forgot the right of the voter. And I, my observation has been that these outside groups always run negative ads. Virtually always. always. And, and, and it completely changes the, the, the nature and the character of your campaign. It does, and what's happened with your local ads, the ones the candidates are actually running, they tend to be more about the candidate, the issues, who they are, mm -hmm. and you know, IDing who they are. But these, this cycle particularly, I think has been brutal from the outside organizations running negative ads about both Bredesen and Blackbird. Well, and, it's, it, go ahead. It's brutal, and, 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 and negative ads usually have fallout on whoever runs they them do. or whoever they they're advocating. The they did in the governor's yeah, primary. And uh, so candidates liked, I think, they're hiding behind the third parties, but the voter doesn't draw the distinction. A negative ad is a negative ad. So, Tom, mm -hmm. the candidates obviously are not supposed to have any input. Uh, any design, uh, any say in what those ads are about, coordination. You're on the inside of both Washington and Nashville politics, and you've been there for a long time. Is that true or not? It's subverted, uh, but, it's, but it's criminal. 
It, so it is happening. Coordination there is, is criminal, coordination between but the campaigns, there is, but there, it, there is coordination occurring. I just wanted to hear somebody from the inside say that. And, 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 um, now, I've not done it because it's criminal. I, I, thank you. I don't want you to call <laughs> in the morning. So. I don't want to call you. Yes. And, and what, are those, uh, <laughs> what do those negative ads tend to drive voters to the ballot box or away from the ballot box? It, it depends. Uh, it's, it, I've seen it do both. Uh, but this this state in the gubernatorial primary rejected and 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 ha and backlashed against negative advertising more than I've ever seen occur. I mean, it, it actually took out two candidates mm -hmm. uh, who were the original front runners in the gubernatorial primary. Can we talk specifics about this Senate race because it is obviously the biggest in terms of the pot of money? Do either of you see any particular ads or spending that sticks out on behalf of either of the two candidates? Are there any specific things that you've said, score one for Bredesen or score one for Blackburn or people spending on their behalf? I think uh, Bredesen's first ad was pitch perfect, where he said, I'm not running against Donald Trump, uh, I'm running for Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump poses something that's good for Tennessee, I'll support it. If not, I'll pose it. Uh, I think Marsha's ads uh, have continued to sound like her district-based campaigns for 18 years. Uh, they're shrill, uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the voters react to the different tonality of the two mm -hmm. campaigns. What I think is really important for everyone to know is that when you get to the end of an ad and it says not approved by any candidate or candidate's committee, that means that that ad was paid for by a super PAC. Um, and so the largest super PACs donating in this particular Senate race um, is Senate um, Majority Leadership has donated about $17 million um, to the Blackburn, or not donated directly, but you know, paid for ads and other things for the Blackburn campaign. And then there are two, um, Majority Ford and Senate Majority Ford on the Democratic side who have spent collectively around $14 million in, um, to support the Bredesen campaign. And so listening for that little tag at the end, both not supported by any candidate or candidate's party and also that paid for by, um, tells you where the money is coming from. And those PACs are operated by the Senate committees of the Republicans or the Democrats mm -hmm. and driven by either McConnell on the Republican side or Schumer on the Democrat side. I'm sure you've, you've looked at this as well, but we're seeing the same phenomena in states like Missouri mm -hmm. where Claire McCaskill is fighting to retain her seat mm -hmm. as a Democrat and in Florida where Bill Nelson is doing the same. It's Arizona, a phenomenal amount of money. Arizona, Arizona North Dakota. Nevada. Every state where there's a contest. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just amazing to watch these. That's how you get to five billion. Yeah. Yeah, right. pretty quick. Yeah, there's actually 37 races where outside spending outstrips candidate spending um, going on right now. And so that includes all of the races you, you mentioned as well as several others. Have, have the divisive campaigns led to the divisive governing that we've seen um, once these candidates, no matter who they are, get into office? Um, it seems like those bridges are real huff, tough to build if you've been through mm -hmm. a, a pretty tough campaign. Well, media, I think uh, your business, mm -hmm. uh, particularly at the national level, and, uh, and this kind of proliferation of, of, of negative money uh, spent on campaigns, I think contributes a lot to our polarization. Mm -hmm. And Tom, it goes back also to something that we've talked about too, the gerrymandering that's gone on by both parties, but the Republicans have been incredibly successful with, but it really creates situations where the fringe gets a lot more control and then it creates a, a much wider gap. Well, it's created a situation where primaries, or where, where primaries are usually the race in a lot of places, right. mm -hmm. and uh, w which is not 
healthy for our democracy either. Mm -hmm. But I think I think money in politics and and redistricting, gerrymandering by redistricting, are two cornerstones of our politics. If we don't tear them out and rebuild them. Our democracy is at risk. We'll talk about the political will to do that when we come back right after this break. Back with our conversation about money and politics. And Tom, you were making the point there are really two pillars to help change this system in what you say would be a positive direction. Yeah, yeah, controlling money mm -hmm. in a different way. And I love the Baker Hooker idea. And, and 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 redistricting, taking it out of the out of the fox, taking the fox out of the hen house, and and having an impartial, scientific based on reasonable population mm -hmm. demographics, mm -hmm. rather than political demographics. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the political reality of of doing either of those based on your research and work? Um, I think that unfortunately it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's not. Um, uh, where the political will is at the moment doesn't mean that we couldn't get there. Um, I certainly, so gerrymandering is basically the creation of non-competitive electoral districts, um, which allows, uh, which undermines democratic accountability because elected officials don't have to fear that they're going to face competitive races. And this is why when you look at a map and it looks like an amoeba and there's no <laughs> real uh, understanding to why there's that finger of one district mm -hmm. and a finger out here, it's, it's carving out. Uh, base for Democrats or carving but out a base for Democrats. Why Marsh's district right. runs from Memphis to Franklin. Right. Yeah, That's but right. Katie, you talk about political mm -hmm. will. We, we have seen a little bit of judicial will mm -hmm. to deal with this. Talk about that and maybe how that's changing some of the landscape in terms of gerrymandered districts. So, um, it's yeah, that's interesting. Um, there has been some court cases that have basically said, especially in North Carolina, mm -hmm. for example, that um, these um, districts that are so purposefully drawn and so obviously drawn um, to create these non-competitive districts are unconstitutional because they violate the one-person, one-vote principle that was established in Baker v. Carr, which actually Howard Baker was not the Baker in that mm -hmm. case, but he did defend the principle one-person, one-vote when he was um, in the Senate as a freshman senator. And so um, there are, the Supreme Court has done some movement on that to sort of protect that principle, but, um, you know, the court is changing, and so it will be interesting to see what happens. Be very interesting. And in that North Carolina case we speak of, our own Heath Shuler might still be the congressman in that district, but for. <laughs> right. Susan, you brought up uh, some perspective on the impact it has when a candidate is in office. Yeah, I think we ought to talk about that a little bit. Tim Burchett, for instance, who's running for Congress, has said several times he's not going to be one of those guys that goes up there and raises money for the House PAC. Well, he probably will be, or he won't have much won't be on influence. The he yeah. won't be on the committee he wants on. But y'all talk about that. That's something that has, to me, as I've seen, you, your, your senators and your congressmen have to, if they want to progress within the party structure, raise money continuously. Mm -hmm. Well, they're doing that for themselves. Right. And, they already and for the that. parties. Yeah. Uh, but every senator and every congressman has a quota from yep. the Senate committee or the House committee to raise a certain amount of money. And there are a few people who bucket, but very few. Mm -hmm. And the th interesting thing is, is they actually cannot do it on congressional property. Right. So there are offices, little cubicles rented across the street yep. where you may find your congressman or senator sitting in a little cubicle making phone calls to donors on a daily basis. Would it help? And you, and, if, go ahead. And you can't buy a staffer a cup of coffee, but if you've got a 5,000 check for a member, you can take him to dinner. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Have we had anybody in our delegation in Tennessee that you can think of who maybe didn't play ball as much as they should have mm. and suffered? Hmm, not recently. Have we had anybody in the delegation that was a superstar? Uh, we've had members who've met their quotas. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say both of our senators mm -hmm. uh, yeah. right now have done a good job at that. Yeah. Well, we've got House members that do as well. The, uh, some of those that get on appropriations, mm -hmm. for instance, the, the prize mm -hmm. committees, they're the ones that are raising the money for the and, and again, the, the, the Baker-Hooker idea, if you can't vote for me, you can't give for me, would shut that down overnight. Let me, let me uh, first of all, I love to think that I'm an idealistic American and I believe in the great qualities of this country. I absolutely do. <laughs> That's why your name is John My True North. My, my people have been here a long time and I love this country, but I can't help but think that if we went that way, somebody else would figure out another way to get disgusting with the money. Mm -hmm. Oh, they'll probably try, but if you really draw the constitutional amendment that tightly, mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have a president that thinks executive order can set aside constitutional well, amendments. Well, we do, so but uh, he hadn't done it yet either, had he? <laughs> he hasn't. That, that was for show, I suspect. And would, and would a candidate under this, would a candidate be able to give unlimited funds from their own? I, I, I would book. amend the Baker-Hooker idea with a second condition that it I can't give myself as a candidate any more than you can give me yeah. as a candidate. Yeah. Has it also kept a third party from, from rising in this country? So um, the answer to that from a political science perspective is no. The reason why we don't have effective third parties is because we have a first-past-the-post electoral system, meaning that um, basically a vote for a third party is a throwaway vote because um, it just generally results in a f only a two effective parties. Let me ask you a quick mm -hmm. question. I noticed Act Blue, which I'm sure you both mm -hmm. are very familiar with, has funneled through a billion dollars mm -hmm. primarily to left-leaning candidates. I wonder if that couldn't be a mechanism in the future for third-party type candidates mm -hmm. to become a significant source or venue for money. Hmm. Um, you still have the Electoral College issue. Mm -hmm. Right, when you're, when you're dealing with a presidential election. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could raise, the right candidate could raise third-party money, but you still got to get through the Electoral so. College issue. Well, Dr. Cahill, yeah. Tom Ingram, we appreciate the conversation. We're going to have to leave it there for now, but yeah. uh, Thank thanks you. to both Thank of you. you. It's fun. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll be back with our talk around right after this. The election is in two days. We hope you vote. A lot of people already have. Don, Susan, and John back with us to talk more about the tea leaves for November <laughs> 6th. Well, uh, I'll start. Um, Two weeks ago, I was very worried for some of the things that were going on that were looking positive for the Democrats. I think the Kavanaugh issue uh, was a strong bump for the Republicans. I actually think that's passed, and as we've talked many times, uh, politics cycle very quickly, and I think the bump that the Republicans may have seen from the Kavanaugh issue, it's not gone all the way, but it has died down a lot, and we've seen in the very last of the early voting some really interesting demographics that might be very helpful for the Democrats nationwide. But does it outweigh the early voting. I mean, the early voting was mm -hmm. astounding. Yeah. The, the first week, I mean, we've already voted, what, 100,000 mm -hmm. people Over yep. in Knox County? And Unbelievable. And you, you figure 240,000 can vote, so can, that's a right. huge that's chunk. That's a huge chunk in the early voting. Now, is anybody going to election day? I don't know. I actually think we are going to see, a, we're not going to see like it used to be, but no. I think we will see a nice bump on election day, and I think we'll see, that's where I think the young voters are actually going to come out on election day and vote on that day, and we'll see. I would like to see that uh, we are supposed to have kind of crummy weather on Tuesday. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're being optimistic about the young voters. What they have two percent or something like that not has voted so far. Well, if um, it goes to six or seven, it's a big difference in this close of a race. I think this Kavanaugh thing cannot be underestimated. I think that huge turnout was a result of that, and yes, I think it has faded some, but that huge early turnout may decide the elections. You can review what the candidates have said on our website, WBIR.com, and also what our panelists said about this election season on the Inside Tennessee page. We appreciate you watching. We'll break down this election next Sunday.